HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. The following program has been brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery. Kane Vineyard and Winery supports Heritage Radio and the growing movement to change how Americans eat and how we think about our planet. For more information, visit www.kane5.com. You're listening to Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelby. You're listening to Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelby. You're listening to Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelby, broadcast live to the cosmos on the Heritage Radio Network. Happy New Year, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Anne Saxelby. My co-host and producer is Sophie Schlesinger. Hello. And with us in the studio today, he might or might not talk, <laughs> is Patrick Martins, host of the main course on the Heritage Radio Network. <laughs> it's an honor to sit in. <laughs> So, if we thought it would only be appropriate for the new year to yes. do a little bit of a roundup show to talk about our favorite shows from 2011, um, uh, and also talk about some cheese news that's happened in 2011, mm-hmm. and uh, and some new stuff, you know, that uh, that's going to happen this coming year. Yeah, and a couple of check-ins with uh, with some guests of of the past year. Exactly. Yeah, people we talked to that um, are you know up to great stuff so it'll be great to check back in with them um oh and we're also going to be talking about the health merits of cheese because it's new year's and everyone's doing their resolutions and we firmly resolve to eat more cheese in 2011 because it's actually good for you yeah we can prove it yeah (laughs) we have a lot of reputable sources yes (laughs) um well before we get started if anybody um we've had a lot of great emails lately if you have email Mm -hmm. or you know questions for us ideas for shows you can always send us an email at info at heritageradionetwork.com and we really appreciate um the ideas and the responses that we've gotten yeah and you can tweet us too at saxelby cheese we've been getting some great tweets lately which is which is fun and quick and i don't know how to use twitter so sophie (laughs) keeps track of all that stuff yeah (laughs) um all right well let's start with our top episodes of 2011 yes so we've chosen three 
that we kind of felt were, I don't know, a little in- interesting, really different, and I'd say a little more holistic in looking at cheese and how it's relevant. Exactly, right as opposed to just, you know, interviews, which are great. We, we, there were a couple shows that tackled bigger issues. Um, our first uh, pick was uh, episode number 78, which is Small Cheese Occupies Big mm-hmm. Food. Um, so I guess we're going to play a short clip from that episode, and then we're going to talk to you, or talk a little bit about what, uh, what's going on with uh, Occupy Big Food at the moment. I've been working on farmer justice issues for a long time, and I would have to say that dairy blogs uh, have a lot of commentary about Occupy Wall Street and what it might mean to us as farmers. Um, it, yeah, I don't know if you heard, we, it, we didn't have much coverage in the media, but last year there were uh, the Obama administration held hearings on um, antitrust issues in dairy um, and what were the major issues, the market consolidation. Um, you probably know that a few large companies totally dominate how milk is priced in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, um, at the hearings, there was some really compelling testimony from the Food Marketing Policy Center out of the University of Connecticut, Dr. Ron Cotterill. Um, the share of the dairy retail basket that actually finds its way back to the farmer has dropped, and that drop has accelerated in the past decade. Um, in 2002, the farmers were receiving, you know, around 42% of the money back that the consumers spent in the store. That By 2009, that figure had dropped to 27%. Um, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange actually sets the, the base price of milk. And, you know, since you're involved in cheese, you probably uh, heard about the Chicago Merc. Um, the spread from what the farmers get has increased dramatically um, since that Chicago Merc began setting our prices. Um, the, the spread initially was around $1.49. So if, if um, the Chicago Merc paid $1.50 for cheese, you maybe see $1.49 markup. The, the markup now that is over three ninety nine. dollars a pound. So the spread keeps widening. So we're, we, we farmers in New York State, uh, there are about 6,000 of us, are in a terrible crunch. We have no control over the price of our milk. It's, it's essentially priced far away. Um, we, are, we are waiting for the Obama administration to get back to us as to any findings from the dairy antitrust <laughs> hearings. We, the hearings were held, and that was it. We never heard from them again. So that was uh, L- Lorraine Lewandrowski, who is um, a prolific Twitter user. If anyone wants to follow her, she's a really fascinating yep. woman. Um, NY Farmer is her Twitter handle. NY Farmer. Um, so we asked Lorraine today if she could um, give us an idea of what is kind of going on in dairy in New York uh, currently. And she had some interesting things to say. Yeah, she pretty much summed it up in one word, um, yogurt. Uh, some of our listeners might know uh, Chobani and Faye have yogurt plants here in upstate New York and uh, employ a lot of people in these smaller towns and are buying a lot of the milk uh, that's that's in New York. And also, um, kind of a newer development, PepsiCo, is building a brand new facility upstate that will be pretty big. It's probably going to employ a couple hundred people and increase the, the competition, I guess, for... Uh, Yogurt in New York. New York State milk, yeah. Well, it's an interesting thing because um, Lorraine also cited that, um, uh, you know, when we were interviewing her, she was talking about Chobani being a a hopeful thing in New York State because um, they were paying better prices and uh, the milk was being purchased locally and processed locally, so the money was staying in the community a little bit more. Um, And it's pretty fascinating. She said that in um, 2000, there were 25.2 million pounds of yogurt produced in New York State. 
And in 2010, there were 369 million pounds of yogurt produced in New York State. So it's it's pretty awesome. It's a big growing industry. And um, and it's kind of an interesting question because Occupy Big Food, um, you know, Pepsi, I would definitely say is, is big yeah, food. Yeah, pretty big. Um, but who knows, you know, getting an injection of, um, you know, sort of extra economic vitality into the New York State dairy market um, could be a good thing. So we were asking Lorraine about the pricing, how would that work? Mm-hmm. And she was basically saying if there's more competition for New York State milk, hopefully that means good things for the price of milk. Yeah. It'll keep going up. And yeah, yeah, hopefully. But um, let us know what you think. You can join in the conversation on Twitter um, or you can send us an email. And um, so the other the other people that participated in that show were Tia Keenan and Heather Squire. Tia Keenan is um, a really excellent um, cheese lover and uh, and chef. And uh, Heather Squire was the chef of the uh, Occupy Wall Street um, People's Kitchen. And um, so uh, uh, we've been trying to keep up with them as well. And um, Occupy Big Food, we saw today, um, they are going to be having a nationwide day of action at the end of February. I don't Mm -hmm. think they've named the date yet. But if you check up on their blog, Mm OccupyBigFood.wordpress.com, you can uh, participate in some way. Um, All right. So that is... uh, Episode 78. Episode 78. And moving on, um, our uh, another episode we wanted to talk about was episode uh, 67, mm-hmm. which um, was still life paintings in the Dutch Golden Age. Um, we had Professor Julie Hochstrasser from the University of Iowa on the show, um, and we will play a short clip from her. Yeah, I'm always reminded of, you know, how delicious these paintings are. I, I get busy, you know, studying about the social and cultural history, and then students look at the pictures and say, oh, this is making me hungry. <laughs> and it reminds me that, yeah, I, I do think that um, people at the time, you know, found pleasure in them and also took great pride in, you know, the kinds of things that were pictured that were really significant to the Dutch economy, like cheese, actually, is one of those <laughs> So that's actually kind of an interesting tie-in, talking yeah. about, you know, Occupy Big Food, how, how the dairy economy is working today. Mm-hmm. Those, those paintings in, the, in, the, in 17th century Holland, um, they were about the Dutch economy as well, because uh, they were, the Dutch were, of course, a nation of traders, which they still are to this day. Yep. And uh, so, you know, in their paintings, they wanted to sh- basically show off the best of their food culture, which yeah. is their cheese and butter and other decadent dairy products. Yeah. And then it, it gave historians, you know, setting the paintings later on an insight into what was economically more profitable them, for them during the time, which is really cool. And wh- yeah, how the value is perceived now. I don't think if you asked anybody to make a painting now of what's significant in the American economy, anyone would paint, you know, yeah. a big, beautiful wheel of cheese. But hopefully that's <laughs> changing. <laughs> um, but so I, I love that show also because I have an art background and I feel like it was just really cool to get um, a deeper lens into those paintings, which are very physically beautiful, but also have such kind of intern, you know, intricate social messages. Yeah, and I think too, we're always talking about the the art and the science of cheese, and anytime that we can, you know, cite an, an academic source of where this is being studied is is really great, and then tying in economics as well is pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, we love Julie Hochstrasser. Um, and uh, our third episode that we wanted to mention, uh, one of our favorites from 2011, was episode 77, which uh, featured Blue Heron Farm um, and was a show about uh, wildfires that were actually uh, a really big problem in Texas earlier in the year. Mm-hmm. And um, 
Christian and Lisa Seeger, um, uh, goat farmers and cheesemakers, um, heroically took in uh, their neighbors um, and all their, their neighbors, their neighbors' children yeah. and their neighbors' goats. Their neighbors in every sense of the word. In every sense of the word and made cheese 24 hours a day around the clock so that they wouldn't have to throw the milk away and like they, they could actually, you know, make some sort of an economic gain out of this terrible natural disaster. Yep. So we'll listen to a quick clip from them. You know, we were doing okay, kind of getting along. And then um, Labor Day weekend, the fire started in our area. Previously, there was a huge fire out in Bastrop, which is kind of between us and Austin. Mm -hmm. And um, we'd been seeing what was happening there, but a lot of that is forest and not very much farmland. I mean, it's still devastating, obviously, but it it wasn't affecting a lot of farmers. Um, On Labor Day Monday, I was actually off-farm running errands, and on my way home from the highway, I could see this huge plume of smoke. And I'm not really good at direction, but I looked at it and thought, oh, that's our town on fire. And I was still about 30, 40 miles away at the time. Um, so I called Christian. This was Labor Day, Monday. And I said, hey, I, I think our town's on fire. <laughs> and he was like, what are you talking about? And it turned out our town was on fire. Um, oh. He went outside and looked. And based on where we were on our farm, it looked like it was maybe five miles away. The town we live in, it's extremely tiny. We're 45 miles northwest of Houston, but we're so small it's not even a town. But oddly enough, there are three grade A goat dairies in our little town field store. Hmm. And where the plume of smoke was looked suspiciously close to the other two who happened to be friends of ours also. So Christian called up both farms and said, hey, step out your door and tell me if you guys are in some kind of trouble. At that time, everyone, we'd had a previous fire in June that was put out successfully after a couple days. And so nobody was really all that amped up about this, but everyone kind of kept their eye on it. Um, By that evening, though, things got really bad, and they both called back and said, yeah, not only is it getting close, the sheriff just came to the door and said, we have to go now. So we took in both both grade-A dairy farmers and all of their goats. So by 7 p.m. on Labor Day Monday, we had our normal farm of 29 goats, um, had uh, goats coming in nonstop until by 10 o'clock there were over 80 additional goats that don't belong to us. Wow. Wow. Crazy story. Yeah. (laughs) They're they're totally heroes. Um, I think, you know, something that we wanted to touch on a little bit that was a big issue in 2011 was uh, just the weather in general. It really caused havoc for a lot of farmers all all across the country and all across the world. I mean... In Texas, we had these wildfires. Hurricane Irene devastated, um, you know, farms and pasture land um, all across the Northeast. And um, it's just a it's a big issue. One that you know, if yeah. the if the Mayans are right, and they seem to be pretty right, <laughs> is only going to get trickier. <laughs> yeah, with uh, you know, with the passage of time. Um, but uh, we're going to actually have Christian and Lisa on the second part of the show to tell us a little bit about how the farm has fared since since the fire and what's going on uh, with mm-hmm. them right now. Um, so uh, I think actually this is a good time to take a quick break. We're just about the midpoint of the show. When we come back, we're going to talk about uh, cheese-related news in 2011 and then check in with the Seegers and with Kathleen Cotter.
And we are back on our New Year's Roundup episode of Cutting the Curd. It was a very exciting break. It was a very exciting break. I'm more excited than when, than, yeah. uh, than I was half. before the break. <laughs> um, so we've been going over our favorite episodes from 2011. Now we're going to, uh, well, we're going to be talking later in the segment with um, Christian and Lisa Seeger of Blue Heron Farm. And we're also going to be following up with uh, Kathleen Cotter uh, of the Bloomy Rind in Nashville, Tennessee, who was on our show earlier in the year. Um, but before we get to them, we're just going to go through some quick cheesy news yeah. from 2011. So uh, right. let's Sophie lead it off. Uh, let's see. Okay, so we already mentioned the Hurricane Irene and our Vermont uh, cheesemakers was a pretty pretty big story and really affected some of the dairy farmers and cheesemakers uh, all across the Northeast. Um, although it's funny, it seems like that was mostly, uh, most of the damage, thankfully, um, damaged pasture land, it seemed like for our farms anyways. Yeah. And the biggest damages or the biggest, you know, hardship oftentimes was that there was no electricity. Yeah. Um, so it's actually interesting, for instance, one farm considered Bardwell farm, um, decided to just invest in a giant generator and now they're, they're kind of like good, you know, if yeah. there's ever another bad storm, they can sort of keep on keeping on. It's good. Good for all of us. Yes. Um, and another, so another cheesy news story. Um, this year, 2011, the American Cheese Society had its annual conference in Montreal, which was the first time that um, the conference was ever held in a foreign country. Um, and then a little bit after the ACS conference, we had the first American Cheese Month, um, which was for the month of October. And we featured here in New York the New York Passport Program. It was one of the first times that, you know, all of the major cheese shops in New York were really working together. And you could go to any of these shops and support ACS and education programs. Patrick? Can I jump in here? Sure. I always think that big conferences like that should be done in the equivalent of, like, third world places for that culture. Uh, Carl Petrino always wanted to do his big meetings in like Africa and Cuba and places like that. I mean, Montreal has got so much good stuff going on. What about like Tennessee, Atlanta, you know, and then you invite general public, have a big fair. Yeah. Uh, it's harder to do that, I know. It's Well, it's going to be in Raleigh this year, you know, Southern. And uh, we'll have to ask Kathleen, this year was the first year of, I believe it was called the Southern Artisan Cheesemakers Festival. Southern Artisan yeah. Cheese Festival yeah. that she uh, she helped produce. So that's exciting. Yeah. Tell us tell us about that. Yes, um, it, we had the the first ever Southern Artisan Cheese Festival. Uh, we invited cheesemakers from around the southeast, and um, we had fourteen or fifteen, and then a few that couldn't make it who sent cheese, and we had some cheesemongers represent them in their stead and. Um, it was fantastic. We sold it out at 750 tickets, and everybody loved it and was super into talking with the cheesemakers and learning and tasting, and so it'll be bigger and better this next year. Well, congrats. Awesome. Yeah. That is very, very cool. Also, welcome back to the show. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, Thank you. So. I could be back. Um, well, and so, uh, uh, the American cheese month, um, all the programs that were happening, uh, a lot of them were raising funds for, um, the American cheese education foundation, which is a sister organization to the ACS. 
um, for their certification program. Um, 2012 is going to be the first time ever that uh, cheesemongers can be certified in the art of cheesemongering if they pass an exam, which is going to be administered at the American Cheese Society Conference in Raleigh in uh, August. And uh, spaces are going fast. So if anybody out there wants to register or learn more, uh, just go to cheesesociety.org and um, you can learn more about what the certification means um, and uh, how to sign up for the exam. It's kind of an important, um, I feel like, step in the in the cheese industry. Yeah, um, it's like sommeliers. You know, you kind of have to be able to, I don't know, measure somehow how much how much cheese knowledge you have. Yeah. Um, and then, last but not least, Cheesemonger Invitational, <laughs> which was a huge a success. Huge success. Uh, this year it was, was really fun. It was really fun. It was basically <laughs> a big party, and p- some people were cutting quarter pound pieces of cheese on the stage. But. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the winner this year of the Cheesemonger Invitational was Steve Jones of the Cheese Bar in Portland. Um, and I personally can't wait for the 2012 edition. It's pretty, yeah. it's pretty hilarious. Yeah, I'll have to see what Adam has up his sleeve. It'll be interesting. <laughs> oh, I'm sure plenty. Um, all right, well, let's let's check in uh, with our guests. So our first guest that we would like to check in with is uh, Kathleen Cotter. Uh, we talked with her back in the... I think s- it was April. In the spring, yeah. yeah. April or May. And uh, since our last show, you have actually opened a brick-and-mortar shop in Nashville, Tennessee. Yeah, so I met um, sort of by happenstance two guys who were working to open a whole animal locally sourced butcher shop. Um, And I proposed the idea. I told them what I was doing and what I had been doing, which was selling the market, and said, you know, I really wanted a permanent home. and, And so we just kind of put our heads together and explored a way in which um, the Blooming Rind could keep its, um, I, I could keep the Blooming Rind, but be within their space. Um, I feel like Nashville is not a town where people are used to going to specialty shops and making those extra stops instead of getting everything at a grocery store. So all along I was trying to find a way to um, make it where you might have specialty stops, but maybe two birds and one, with one stone which is, you know, sort of the perfect perfect thing. So people, you know, we what they're doing and what I do, we have very similar philosophies. So we're going to appeal to the same customer base, we felt. And so we put, um, so I have a cheese case, so I have sort of a little counter within the butcher shop. Um, so it's their business, and my business is within it. Does that make sense? Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and so what's the name of their, of the butcher shop? It's Porter Road Butcher. Porter Road Butcher. Um, well, I think that's really great. It's a great way for you to consolidate, like you said, customers, um, because people who are looking for your kinds of products, uh, if they can get everything in one spot, you know, all of their delicious meat and dairy, that's wonderful. And um, it also shares, you know, shares the risk a little bit for both of you entrepreneurs, because opening a business is, uh, you know, it's not an easy, easy thing. So if you can kind of go in on it with somebody, yeah, that's a good deal. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, got incredibly fortunate that they were open to it and they were farther along and as far as gathering financing and then building out a space and so they were they were uh, you know a year ahead of me (laughs) and all of that so it was just an incredibly um fortunate thing for me to be able to do for sure and so what was it like to opening or to open a retail store during the month of December. Yeah. <laughs> Haven't you only been open for two weeks? It's or... the smartest idea ever. Right? <laughs> yeah. 
It's like jump into the deep end of the pool times like 2000. <laughs> and then paddle as yeah. hard as you can. Um, yeah, so we did some soft opening dates around Thanksgiving and, um, you know, early in early December. And then we opened, opened on December 13th. And it was um, crazy and busy and fun and exciting. And I pretty much ran out of cheese um, right at or just just after Christmas, so I learned um, a little bit about, you know, buying more than I expect <laughs> to sell, and um, yeah. and then I quickly restocked <laughs> in between Christmas and New Year's, and you know, sold a bunch more. So, um, and it was, you know, we we just sort of, you know, I think prepared everyone for we're new at this and we'll do our best, and most people were gracious and patient and just excited that. Um, but the butcher shop and the cheese shop are here, and so mostly it was great. And there were, you know, of course, some hiccups, but, but all in all, it was good. And it was nice to get those sales, you know, in the beginning of our process instead of starting in uh, in August be or a something. Bit quieter, yeah. <laughs> right? Are in you August selling or January? So. Are you selling mostly southern cheeses, or are you? How how did you kind of uh, curate your selection? Um, well, I, I actually. This was sort of inspired by Anne's shop that I visited way back when I started my process, and um, the fact that she focused um, on regional and, and domestically made cheeses, it kind of felt like it would be a really, um, it was more accessible to me as, a, as someone starting out in this instead of trying to know all the cheeses of the world. And, um, and it was a way that I could support farmers who I would get to know and who were who were making cheese sustainably, which was really important to me. Um, so I focus on the region, but um, not exclusively. I definitely carry things from other parts. Just we don't have quite the cheesemaker density that other more cheese-centric regions have. So I focus on it. I highlight it. We did the festival, but there's there's definitely some awesome Vermont and New York and. Oregon and California cheeses in the mix, so and Wisconsin, that's, and uh, that's great. That's great. And so I was wondering, um, do, how do you think that the cheese culture in Nashville is changing since uh, since you started, you know, your work with the Bloomy Rind at the markets till now? Well, it's, it, Nashville is a town that's um, it's hard to meet somebody who grew up here. <laughs> so we, we definitely are a, a city that has a lot of implants from other places. So a lot of people um, it, who are attracted to both the butcher shop and the cheese shop are from other places up north, for example. And so this is something that they're used to and they're very excited about. Um, and I think it's been just a, kind of the trend, the trend and the, the movement that we're seeing everywhere, I think, of people caring more about what they're eating and where it comes from and asking questions and learning. And so it's, it's something that's going on here as well as other places. And um, so we're just, you know, the beneficiaries and we get to help grow it as well. So that's really, really exciting. Well, yeah. congratulations to you. I can't, I, I can't wait to come visit. I gotta, yeah, <laughs> I gotta get to Nashville. <laughs> and thanks. Thanks for taking do, time to talk do. to us. Thank you. All right. Well, we are going to check in uh, also with uh, now Christian and Lisa Seeger from Blue Heron Farm. Are you guys on the line? Uh, yeah, I'm here. Christian's out farming. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's got to do the dirty work, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, and I prefer it be him. 
(laughs) (laughs) So um, tell us, how has your, you know, the rest of your fall and winter been? Has the weather calmed down a little bit? Are things back to normal on the farm? We're about as normal as we ever get. Um, (laughs) We actually managed to get some rain in November and also in December. December is usually our wettest month here, so we're still under normal, but it's been this amazing thing that the rains came and grass is growing in December, which it shouldn't. This is not the season for grass, but we'll take it anytime we can get it. And it's made us really hopeful for next year. That's great. Yeah, that's great. And um, so I was wondering, you know, how has the public response been to your farm after doing the the wildfire chev? Has there been, um, you know, have you guys experienced a big influx in sales um, or, you know, attention from the community that you didn't have before? We definitely have gotten a lot more PR out of it. I think it's one of those things that you can be anonymous forever, but once you get attention, then, you know, people don't have to look very hard to find you. So our biggest and most fun thing is the Minister of Propaganda, as we like to call him, um, came to our farm. Voice of America did a profile on our farm. Um, and Voice of America is the State Department's channel that they show abroad. Wow! So I guess we're ambassadors for goat herding across across the world now. Wow. <laughs> Congrats! That's amazing. <laughs> when you said Minister but of Propaganda, I, I thought you. Oh no! When you said Minister of Propaganda, I thought you maybe were talking about some like goofy character from Austin or yeah. something. I didn't know you really meant <laughs> the Minister of Propaganda. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it really is the Minister of Propaganda. And I called him that when he was here because I have um, an inability to filter sometimes, but he seemed really okay with that. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. And so, um, and how about your neighbors? How how are they faring? Yeah. Are their farms okay? And are they back kind of in normal production? Yeah, you know, everybody is back. Everybody has experienced decreased production this year. And, you know, it's so hard to tell how much of it would be the fire and how much of it would just be the crushing drought. I mean, the nutrition that our animals get is subpar this year because of the drought. So it's really not easy to know where the blame lies. But all of us are down a little. And now, of course, seasonally, because we all practice seasonal um, farming, we're all down for the winter. But all of us noticed a decrease in production. And it's just, you know, it's just really hard to pinpoint. But um, we're all still chugging along and we're all still in business. So, I mean, that's what's most important. And when do you guys, uh, when are you going to get started up again for the spring? Well, we're starting our kidding um, February 10th. On a normal year, we would have started a little sooner, but our breeding had to be postponed when we had 120 random animals running around. So we started (laughs) breeding about two weeks, three weeks after everybody left. So our babies will start coming February 10th, and the milk will pick up steadily um, starting then. So we're really looking forward to it. But um, I don't know, low season has its perks too. So Yeah, a little downtime is always a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. So are you guys taking any kind of special precautions for next year or doing anything differently planning wise to uh, anticipate any any other sort of, you know, weather, weather related problems? Yeah, one of the things we did is we actually bought a semi load of hay from out of state. Um, When everything started getting really scarce and really scary, um, we bought um, well, half a load, so 13 huge round bales. And normally that would be a whole year's supply for us. And um, we just thought better safe than sorry. So we've got um, many tons of hay sitting in our barnyard now and covered with a tarp. And so in a worst-case scenario, we're going to have something to feed our goats. But um, short of that, well, I guess we'll try rain dancing and <laughs> just be really optimistic. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you've got some good rains coming your way now, hopefully that'll continue. Yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, man. Well, thanks so much for um, for taking the time to check back in. And I'm um, glad to hear that everything is going well. And uh, so, well, we're almost out of time on the show, yeah. but we couldn't start, you know, the new year without extolling the nutritional virtues of yeah. cheese. And reminding everyone how, how good it is for you. You can, <laughs> you can keep eating it in 2012. Yeah, exactly. Everybody always like, you know, parties hard, eats lots of good food, drinks a lot, hangs out with their friends. And then, you know, come January, everyone wants to, you know, turn over a new leaf. But we think, you know, you can still eat the cheese. Yeah, cheese is, is part of the new leaf. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, we actually found a really funny article online. Actually, Mike, our cave manager, found a funny article online yeah. in the in the Hindustani Times, um, <laughs> <laughs> saying that um, cheese. Um, well, they were actually doing a cheese diet versus a butter diet, and both of those are kind of questionable. But um, the cheese diet is apparently better for you than the butter diet. Yes. <laughs> yes. And uh, this is via the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. That's so it's, true. It's got some data to, to back it up. I think. Exactly. Exactly. Well, so basically, um, um, they were saying that after the six weeks diet of, you know, lots of cheese, more than you would usually consume, the people that were on the cheese diet had um, lower um, levels of both of the um, the bad cholesterol. Yeah. Um, I can never remember which is which. But um, uh, so that was, you know, that was good. Cheese and cholesterol, you know, you can just throw that one out the window. Don't have yeah. to worry about it. <laughs> um and then we also looked at a, uh, a presentation that I actually attended at the American Cheese Society conference this year. Um, it was actually a really funny presentation. There was this French gentleman um, who was just really, really convinced that, you know, there's nothing wrong with cheese and it was really, really healthy for you and, and really good. And, um, you know, saturated fatty acids are things that people, you know, often demonize when they're talking about, yep. you know, eating too much cheese and fatty dairy. However, he was emphasizing that there are many different kinds of saturated fatty acids. And actually, the kinds in cheese are good for you, whereas the kinds um, found in like, you know, processed vegetable oils, palm oil, corn oil, those kinds of things, um, those can be problematic. Yes. Um, yeah. But, you know, so cheese, cheese is okay. Um, and finally, you know, they, they were emphasizing that milk in itself is such a nutrient dense substance. Um, you know, scientists can't even understand all the, all the parts of it and all the beneficial little things that are, that are locked up inside the matrix. Um, and especially, uh, raw milk, um, it's full of natural flora and fauna that have tons of health benefits, including for your immunity, for, um, allergies. Um, and also again, you know, it says reduction of cholesterol. So there you have it. Who needs Lipitor? <laughs> Just eat some cheese. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I think that'll do it for our, our 2011 yeah. roundup. We can't wait for 2012. And uh, we'll see you next Monday on the Heritage Radio Network. Bye. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. On December 17th, Typhoon Sendong dropped over 180 millimeters of rain in less than 24 hours and caused severe flash flooding to the northern Mindanao region of the Philippines. The cities of Iligan, 
and Cagayan de Oro City were hit the worst, and the area has suffered severe damage and human loss. 654 people have been claimed dead, hundreds more are missing, and nearly 100,000 Filipinos have been displaced after the floodwaters destroyed everything in its path during the late hours of the night. The city's power and water supplies were shut down for nearly 24 hours, and many Filipinos need your help. Xavier University is accepting donations to help those in need. Please visit www.sendongrelief.org for more information. That's www.sendongrelief.org.